That's really interesting. You want to go into the next one? Sure. So this gentleman is 47 years old, presented in September 2012 with acute renal failure, uh, serum creatinine of 3.5. His calcium was also elevated at 13, and he had an anemia pretty profound for a 47-year-old guy, hemoglobin of 8. SPEP showed uh, 500 milligrams per deciliter IgA spike, and his skeletal survey showed multiple punctate lesions throughout the skeleton. Nothing large, but pretty much diffusely found. Uh, bone marrow biopsy showed a 90% involvement of a 95% cellular marrow, so he was just packed with plasma cells. So he received treatment with dexamethasone, subcutaneous bortezomib, and lenalidomide, along with zoledronic acid. He had an excellent response to therapy. His serum creatinine normalized, and his cytopenias resolved, and subsequently underwent a bone marrow biopsy showing less than 10% involvement. His case took a bit of a turn. After three cycles of tolerating the bortezomib without so much as a bat of the eye, he didn't seem to bother him one bit. Nothing seemed to bother this guy. He suddenly and very quickly developed this neuropathy, which, you know, now a year later is still bothering him, you know, really, really cramping his style. This is a gentleman who works as an engineer in town here and has missed some work and has required high-dose narcotics in addition to gabapentin to treat his neuropathy. He underwent transplant in March of 2013. Bone marrow biopsy two months after the transplant showed him to be in remission. And about two months after the transplant, I started him on maintenance lenalidomide. He had some initial cytopenias and actually had an admission for pneumonia with an ANC less than 1,000. So I reduced his lenalidomide, and he's currently on 10 milligrams on the 21-day out of 28 schedule. But it still appears to be in clinical and laboratory remission. You know, so the questions I had for Dr. Gertz about this bortezomib-related neuropathy, is there something I could have done or could have noticed early on? You know, when I've seen this before, I've sort of gotten a bit of an early warning, the patient telling me something's starting to bother them, and I'll back off on the bortezomib right away. But this guy just seemed to come on kind of out of nowhere. So I think two teaching points here. Here's a patient who is on maintenance therapy, and I think that's just as fine as the patient who wasn't on maintenance therapy. I think it was completely legitimate. And here, of course, is a patient who's 47 years old who wishes to be as proactive as possible. And even without survival data, the patient feels better they're doing something. And I believe this is the one whose wife's a nurse. Correct. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that plays into that. So here's a patient who's really had a spectacular response, has done extremely well from the myeloma standpoint, but now has basically oxycodone and oxycontin and gabapentin to manage the neurotoxicity. And of course, if you had to grade this for a protocol, he's got grade one neuropathy with pain. That's all it is, which is why all these trials that talk only about grade three, grade four, that's just half the story because this patient works full time and so doesn't have any interference with activities of daily living, which is the definition of a grade two neuropathy. And then the question is, was there anything to do to prevent? Well, there are patients I've seen who've had explosive onset of neurotoxicity, and I mean autonomic failure, orthostatic hypotension, can't get out of a wheelchair four cycles into it. But they are rare, and it becomes very important, I think, for the chemotherapy nurses to really question about any tingliness, does it feel like you're walking on the carpet? When you get up at night to go to the bathroom, do you have trouble because it's dark and stumbling? Those sorts of things for subtle neuropathy. In my practice, I see patients on bortezomib. 
I've got my reflex hammer out. I'm checking their ankle and knee jerks to see if they're losing that part of the reflex loop. I think that kind of keys me in. I'm sure that there are patients in whom you just can't predict it and can't prevent it. But I certainly think we can do a heck of a lot of a better job in trying to preempt it. And of course, there's the, does the patient at this point in their course need twice a week? Do they need IV? Am I okay with a 1.3 milligram per meter squared dose? All those have to keep entering in as we keep quizzing the patients for that because of the fact that these tend to be irreversible. Are you using any IV bortezomib at the Mayo Clinic? No. Almost everyone gets a sub-Q. The only exception is when we use it in an amyloid patient who has heart failure or nephrotic syndrome, and there's lots of edema, and you don't know what you're injecting it into. Gotcha. So I thought about a way you could have prevented the neuropathy. Not give him the abortezomib? Well, I was going to ask Mari what he thinks about CRD and where that's heading. You know, carfilzomib instead of bortezomib. Hmm. I mean, as far as I know, you can tell me what your thoughts are. I hear people saying carfilzomib is not associated with neuropathy. There's no question that it's not associated with neuropathy. And currently, in our country, you can't use carfilzomib Third-party payers won't reimburse for upfront new diagnosis therapy. However, there is an active trial now nationally. It's ECOG plus SWOG plus Alliance, and it's newly diagnosed standard risk myeloma, and it's a two-arm study, bortezomib lenalidomide dex, carfilzomib lenalidomide dex with quality-of-life studies. And hopefully that will answer how we need to go about managing our newly diagnosed patients with proteasome inhibitors. What on the other side of terms of carfilzomib, so you would expect you would see less or no neuropathy, what are some of the problems you think might be seen in this study? And putting sort of the regulatory issues aside, I mean, do you think there's enough data right now to be using CRD? We know that carfilzomib has quite high single agent activity. It salvages patients who are true failures on lenalidomide and bortezomib. But again, that doesn't necessarily make it better than our standard of care bortezomib, which has gotten over the last four years much safer and much less toxic to administer as we learn more about alternate dose, schedule, and route. Whether at the end of the day, one of those agents will become the standard of care. It's really impossible to say it's why we're doing the trial. I have no doubt that carfilzomib doesn't have neurotoxicity, but there are issues and questions that have been raised about cardiopulmonary toxicity, the dyspnea associated with carfilzomib, the fact that the carfilzomib dosing schedule can be problematic for patients, six doses IV with each cycle, Maybe that'll be resolved when the new oral proteasome inhibitors come forward. But for right now, I wouldn't want to lay a wager as to, at the end of the day, whether there'll be a proteasome inhibitor of choice. Would you want to wager whether there's going to be a significant difference in efficacy? I wouldn't wager that either. Again, part of the problem is that I've been using bortezomib in the newly diagnosed patients for a number of years, and I've really been floored by the magnitude, the depth, and the speed of response. It's an impressive agent, 
that we just need to manage the safety profile better. My problem is I have minimal experience with carfilzomib in the newly diagnosed patient. And so I'm hard pressed to comment as to whether it will have that drama in terms of producing responses for patients. We need more experience. You know, maybe we can talk a little bit more about carfilzomib in terms of relapse disease, but just in terms of bringing it up in this situation, I don't know if you ever faced this in terms of patients who have pre-existing neuropathy, for example, from diabetes. Would that be a situation where you'd want to use carfilzomib? Well, there's no question that patients who have neuropathy for other reasons, including patients with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia that have this predisposed neuropathy, do have greater neurotoxicity from bortezomib. And so that's a consideration if you can get reimbursement. Oftentimes in patients who have a lot of neuropathy, I'll start the bortezomib at 0.6 because I'm nervous. Or sometimes I'll just say, maybe we'll go with cyclophosphamide, lenalidomide, dexamethasone. Is there a significant cost difference between these two agents, between carfilzomib and bortezomib? No. You also mentioned, actually it's getting to be one of my favorite poll questions that I ask when we do meetings because there's such diversity in how people respond, but you mentioned this issue of the potential for cardiopulmonary toxicity with carfilzomib, and you know, so when we ask people, you know, is carfilzomib cardiotoxic, and usually half the audience will say yes, half will say no. What do you say, Mari? Well, I don't know cardiotoxic. People get short of breath, I'll tell you that. They really get short of breath during it. It tends to be quite transient. You know that the frequency in which the chemo unit calls you has fallen with the increased infusion times, which I think has gone a long way. But I don't think there's any understanding about what's going on with the cardiac dynamics during a carfilzomib infusion. So I'm not quite certain. I've certainly never seen one of these patients have a troponin rise or a dramatic change in their BNP levels. As you look at this man, I'm curious, you know, maybe he might have even asked you today, What are you expecting to happen with the neuropathy? What's the chance that it's going to resolve completely? This was a question that we brought up, Dr. Gertz and I, with the patient himself. You know, my opinion is, unfortunately, he's probably going to have to live with it for the rest of his life. And that's part of the reason why I think it was such a pressing question for me. I always hate to do something that disables somebody or makes them uncomfortable for the rest of their life. One thing I learned from Dr. Gertz today, among the many things, was to be a bit more aggressive or maybe a lot more aggressive with the gabapentin. I had him on, I had prescribed to him 300 milligrams three times a day. He revealed, his wife revealed, who's a nurse who's been kind of titrating this, that he was actually taking it only twice a day and at kind of a different, a funny different dose. So we talked to them, did a little education there and provided him a 300 milligram tablet so he wouldn't be swallowing three or five tablets at a time, trying to be more aggressive and get him up to, I think, Dr. Gertz, you said that really 900 TID is about where it needs to be to get some kind of response to this kind of neuropathy. Right. The sad thing is prevention is the best you're going to do. There's no absolute solution. You know, there's been a lot of talk over the years about alpha-lipoic acid supplementation, which I haven't found very helpful. We've tried compounded salves that have ketamine in them and lidocaine that they apply, and that doesn't go so far. And I'm certainly not trying to sell gabapentin as some universal solution. You hope it makes things a little better, but I'm unconvinced that this patient isn't going to have long-term problems. You know, it's one of the, I guess, a bit of a disappointment for me. I really had, after reading the literature, I really felt like sub-Q bortezomib was going to 
reduce these neuropathies substantially. And it certainly does reduce them, or maybe it delays them. I don't know, maybe that's a better term. But all of these patients we're talking about today got sub-Q, and a good number of them have neuropathies in spite of that.